So whether or not you've been journeying with us for the last few weeks, we are quite deep into a series on the kingdom of God. And the reason why, uh, some of you have heard me say this four or five times now, but the reason why we're talking about the kingdom of God is because Jesus talks about the kingdom of, of God. In fact, one could argue that the kingdom of God is probably the biggest and most clear organizing structure in the whole Bible. Meaning you can follow it from page one right through the entire Old and New Testament right until the final page of, this, of the Scriptures. And, and you can just see the kingdom on every single page and how Jesus comes as a fulfillment bringing the kingdom and also as the king of the kingdom. And so we in many ways are relying on some of the ground we've traveled over the last few weeks uh, and where I can, I'll just kind of catch us up together there. But last week we looked at the idea that there are two types of kingdoms in this world. There is one type of kingdom, which I'll refer to as the kingdoms of this age or the kingdoms of this world. And the scriptures say that they are temporary. Now, temporary may mean years. It may mean centuries. But at some point in time, the kingdoms of this world, the scriptures say, will be shaken and they will cease to be. So that is the one kind of kingdom. Then we've got another kind of kingdom, which is growing alongside these kingdoms. But unlike these kingdoms, this kingdom, which starts with Jesus bringing the kingdom into this world, Jesus describes it, it's like a mustard seed being planted, but it grows and it continues to grow and it continues to grow until it is the biggest, most powerful, more, most life-giving kingdom amongst all the kingdoms. And then the time will come when the king comes back and he purges the world of these kingdoms and this kingdom will be the only one remaining. All right, so two types of kingdoms. One type that is temporary, one type that is life-giving is here in this present world and will one day be the only one standing and we will experience that kingdom in fulfillment. Now, as I was thinking about today's message and how to kind of get our minds engaged in this, um, I, I thought of a little idea and just on the front end, my little caveat is what I'm about to say is complete fiction. All right, and in no way at all a political commentary. All right, just putting that out there so don't hold me to anything if you're hearing me online, okay? But I just want you to imagine, here we are living in South Africa. Let's just, for the sake of argument, call it the kingdom of South Africa. All right, so here we are. We've got our own nation state. We've got our currency. We've got our ways. We've got the things that define us. We've got our history. But imagine you knew for absolute certainty that in a few years' time, the kingdom of South Africa would cease to be in its entirety. For whatever reason, there was a, a nation that had grown in power. There was a nation that had kind of come to some sort of point where it was agreed that they would move in. South Africa, as it is, would cease to be. And so the question is, South Africa is still going, but it's going to end. There's this other nation that is also in existence, but it is the one that will stand. And the question is, in these in-between times, where would you be wise to invest your finances, your money, your time, and your energies? 
If you knew for a fact South Africa would cease to exist, you'd be absolutely foolish to invest in the RAND currency. Don't you think? Or in our South African banks. In fact, wisdom would dictate, well, these structures are going to cease to be, and so I need to invest in the kingdom to come. I need to invest my financial resources and my energies into the one that is coming that is already here in many ways and that is going to outlast the kingdom that I'm currently in. Does that make sense? And yet when it comes to the kingdom of God, for some reason, we believe it is so wise to put our primary investments into these temporary kingdoms of this world instead of investing our treasure and our hearts and our resources and our time and our passions and our energies and our focus into the one kingdom that will outlast all other kingdoms. And that's what today is about because the question is, there's two types of kingdoms. These kingdoms are on a trajectory of ending in finality. This kingdom is on a trajectory of eternity And so how do we, in this in-between time, live in this kingdom? So how do we invest our energy and our time and our resources in this kingdom in such a way that it matters for the long term? Because here we are kind of living in this in-between time. This age continues to be, this age continues to exist. And yet Jesus, by his entrance into this world, has brought the kingdom in. And now we're living in this kind of overlap of these two ages. So how do we? Make sure that we are on this trajectory in order to be living in that kingdom under the lordship of Jesus Christ in order to see that kingdom come and that kingdom to grow. And really, I want to kind of put, I hope I do this kind of semi-regularly, but I want to put a bomb under the idea that being a Christian simply means I pray the right prayer, I carry on with life as usual, and one day I'm going to kind of go to the right place. And hopefully what's starting to emerge out of the series is that, no, 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 being a Christian means that I am in this kingdom. I choose this kingdom. I choose the king of this kingdom. I choose the life of this kingdom. I choose in this present age to live in the way and the power that is provided for in this kingdom, even though others may look in and not see anything great. We looked at that last week. We know the outcome of this kingdom. We see the eternal value of this kingdom. That's what it means to be a Christian, living the life now of the eternal kingdom, living in the reality that God reigns in Jesus Christ now and will forevermore. And so this means we're moving from kind of like a passive I go to church a few times a week, a, a month. I kind of do my thing. I try not to do too many naughty things. And that kind of means I'm safe. It moves from that kind of passive faith, that kind of passive response to the king, to an active participation with God in his kingdom. And I'm hoping that God's doing that in your hearts and in us corporately as a church as well. I want to tell you about a bit of a shift that has happened in, in my mind and my heart over the last few weeks as we have journeyed into this Kingdom of God series. 
You see, I always used to understand uh, God using us in the following way. And I've even said similar things from the stage. Not untrue, but I think there's more for us. Where I used to say things like this. Listen, guys, it's just, isn't it amazing that God uses us? Kind of assuming we are frail, which we are. And there's God up there in His perfections and in His sovereignty and He's doing all these great and mighty things, some of which we see, many of which we don't, which is absolutely true. And every now and again, God kind of throws us a bone and uses us. And we are amazed by that. And in my sort of imagination, I almost saw that as kind of plan B. Like God is up there doing His perfect work. And then every now and again, He uses us kind of like, guys, please don't make me regret this. Please don't mess this up. And as we've gone through this series, I've realized so much of that is true, except this. God using us, his children in his kingdom, is not some sort of second-rate idea. It's not plan B, it's plan A. Right from the beginning of Scripture, we see God creating humanity to reign and rule under his lordship in the kind of way that he would reign and rule. So it's a submitted, obedient, faith Filled activity of reigning and ruling. And somehow there's this participation where God leads, God empowers, but we obey in faith. And somehow in that moment, we see God's kingdom come. Think throughout the entire Old and New Testaments. Just think in your own mind. Think how many stories you can think of where God did something without doing it through participation with humanity. Because the way I always used to think about it was, oh God, of course. I mean, you can, like, someone could be driving on the N1 and you can save them. Uh, Lord, you can just like flash down some sort of grace on our country and you can do something amazing. But when I look at the scriptures, I see that every time God did something amazing, he called a human being to be in partnership with that moment. The power was his, the initiation was his. The kingdom coming is his power and his reign and rule coming, but he invites the participation of humanity, of his people. Think about like the Red Sea. Don't you think God could have just gone, hey, here's my people coming out of Egypt. They're heading straight towards the Red Sea. I better do something about that. Part the waters. Did he do it that way though? Could he have? Oh, 100%. What did he do? Hey, Moses, here's what I want to do but I'm gonna ask you to faithful, submitted obedience. And I'm gonna ask you to take your staff and I'm gonna ask you to touch your staff to the waters. And that's when my kingdom is gonna come in this moment. And I would wager that if you went throughout the entire Old and New Testament, whenever you see even some of these big miraculous moments, 99.9% of the time, it is God acting in a mysterious participation with His children, bringing His kingdom, yes? And so this is not a plan B, that we should be amazed that God uses us in our, our, our kind of our fragility. This is God's intention and design based on the fact right in page one of Scripture that when He created us, he created us in a unique way that separates us from all of the created order where he said, I'm gonna create them in my image. And as image bearers, they, are, they have responsibility in this creation and he defines that responsibility by reigning and ruling in this way. 
We've seen how we're absolutely horrible at that. Like Moses, we get these glimpses of God's kingdom through his obedience. And then of course, Jesus comes on the scene and suddenly we see this human in perfect participation with the Father. And every time he spoke and every time he acted, God's kingdom came. All right, and now you and I, we are in Christ as we are in the kingdom and God is, that that image never went away, but in many ways we can maybe think about it, it kind of got fractured like a broken mirror, wasn't reflecting the glory of God accurately, but then Jesus comes, the perfect image of God, as we are in Jesus, He restores that image in us. And part of that is not just, yay, I'm in the kingdom, yay, I'm going to the right place when I die, but also there comes a responsibility to live out this God-given mandate of dignity and power and purpose. Guys, uh, this kingdom is the only kingdom that gives humanity the kind of dignity and power and purpose. It has always been that way. If we think about some of the competing kingdom narratives, I mean, everyone today, and it's, it's a good thing, but are fighting for equal rights and are fighting for a justice and are fighting against the injustices. And whether people are religious or not, or of various religious persuasions, many people are saying, listen, we need to fight for those who have no voice. We need to fight for those who have experienced injustice. We need to recognize that we are all created equal. And I'm like going, but on what basis? Because if, According to the kind of the kingdom narrative of this age, if we are simply a collection of organic molecules that came into existence through random, unguided processes, often through systems of violence, what makes us any difference to a park town prawn? Some of you are like looking at your husband, you're like, uh, yeah, Steve's right. <laughs> But why do we have anything unique? Why do we have any unique purpose in this world? Aside from pond scum, right? And I would argue it's always been this way. If we look at kind of the narratives of the kingdoms of this world, either they will flat out deny that there is any inherent dignity to humanity and people like Richard Dawkins would admit that. Or we look at the ideologies of the kingdoms of this world and there's a selective dignity that's given to humanity as long as we are the ones who have dignity and everybody else does not. And history is full of ideologies that have seen humanity through that lens. Or there are ideologies alive which would deny that human beings have, all, have any dignity in theory, but in reality, they're affirming the dignity of humanity. And I'm saying, listen, this doesn't add up. And right from the beginning, when we recognize that God made every human being in the image of God with the given, God-given dignity and purpose to do what He's created us to do, that has seemed insane compared to even the kingdoms of the world back then. I want you to imagine being like a little Israelite boy or girl kind of, you know, several thousand years ago and you've got your understanding of who you are according to the scriptures and you sit down with your Canaanite neighbor and you get to religious discussions and you get to the point where you say, you know, no, I believe we are all created equal in the image of God. They would see you as insane. 
Because if you look at the competing kingdom narratives, whether you look at the Egyptian ideologies or the Assyrian or the Babylonians or the Canaanites, they would say, yes, there are some people who are created in the image of God, but those are our kings. Our kings are created in the image of God. And yes, they are called to reign and rule and in many ways represent the will of the gods. But it is only them, not us. And then there's this tiny little nation on planet Earth that has the audacity to stand up and say, no, no, you're wrong. Not only do royalty have the image of God, not only do the wealthy and the healthy have the image of God in them, but every single person does. And as we understand that basis and how unique it is, it sets us free to not only accept that truth, but to live out the implications of that truth, especially as we engage the kingdom of God and redeem what God wants us to be and to do in his kingdom under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that is who the church is. The church is those who have seen the kingdom of God, going back to some of last week, they have been born again. They've seen the value of the kingdom of God. They've stepped out of the kingdoms of this world into the kingdom that will stand for all of eternity. And they start living out faithful, obedient lives. And we get to do that together. Doesn't only happen on a Sunday morning. Some incredible things happen when we come together and we worship and we come into God's word. But at the same time, when you go home this afternoon, when you wake up tomorrow morning, you are still one in whom God is regenerating the image of God in you that means something. And that's what today's about. And yet there's all this tension that the time will come when we see it in its fullness, but we're living in these two ages The king has come, but the kingdom's growing like a mustard seed. And for those who cannot see it, they're gonna look at this mustard seed and not be very impressed. And so as as John Piper kind of tries to understand these tensions, he says, sure, sometimes we see God healing, but we also grow sick. We are passed, according to the scriptures, we've passed from death to life, but we still die. We have received today the spirit as a deposit, but yet there is still a war between flesh and spirit every day. We have been acquitted of all sins, yet we still pray daily, forgive us our trespasses. We have already become citizens of heaven, yet we still submit to the governors of this world. Can you see how there's a truth that invades the presence from the future, which is true today, and yet we still live in this world? Yet we know that it is this one that will cease to be and that is the one which will continue. That's why even Paul, he even says, listen, as much as I try to live out the kingdom of God now, I still only see in part. One day I'll see face to face, but now I see in part, I know in part, I prophesy in part. And yet... In spite of this intersection of two worlds, this overlapping of two worlds, we are still called to courageously and obediently live out in this world the reality of the kingdom of God now. But now before I start getting into what that kind might look like for us, I might get some pushback for this next little section of the message. But some 
people have generated this idea that everything that is true of the ministry of Jesus has to be and should be true for every single believer in the kingdom all the time. Those are expectations. If Jesus did it, we should do it. Now, that is kind of partly true. Jesus himself said in John 14, you're gonna do the same things as me and in many ways you're gonna do more than me. The way I understand that is there's billions of Christians alive today, whereas while he was on planet Earth, there was one walking around Galilee and Judah, right? But nonetheless, Jesus says, sure, there is some truth to this. You're gonna be doing some of my works, but here's what we don't always understand. Not everything that Jesus did is simply reduced to being an example of what other believers can do should we have the Spirit of God in us. Because some of Jesus' works were to show and reveal his glory. So maybe, I'm not gonna ask for hands here, but maybe if you could choose to do any miracles of God, it would be when he turned water into wine, right? Okay? And you're like, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm gonna lay hands on my water this afternoon and we're gonna have a good time. And um, I don't think at Riverside yet we've ever plumbed the depths of the kind of theological depths and density of that particular moment. In other words, Jesus wasn't like, hey, let me show this party some awesome tricks. There's such layers of what God was doing in that moment and such meaning and such significance, not simply a display of his power. But at the end of that story, John actually tells us that in this way, he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So why did Jesus turn water into wine? so that his disciples could see his glory. In the same book earlier, a few verses earlier, John 1 verses 14, it's the glory of the one and only. In other words, the glory of the Son is uniquely different to the glory of anyone and anything else. And so some of his works were to reveal his unique glory. Some of his miracles were signs to his identity, again, to his unique identity. John 5, verses 36, Jesus says this, the works which the Father has granted me to accomplish, those very works which I am doing, bear witness to me that the Father has sent me. In other words, why is he doing certain miracles? Is it just to show the rest of us what we can do If we are filled with the Holy Spirit and the answer is no, some of his miracles were to prove his identity as the son of God. And in fact, the book of John doesn't call those miracles miracles, he calls them signs. Another example, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and he was kind of speaking to the sisters after that and answering some of their questions, his explanation wasn't, listen, if you have faith in me, you can go and do the same thing. His answer was, here's my explanation. I am the resurrection and the life. And so by doing this particular miracle, I have demonstrated something that is uniquely true about me. And yet I know that maybe this kind of sounds like a wet blanket. Maybe this sounds like putting some brakes on. And in as much as there are certain acts of Jesus which were to uniquely reveal his glory, and uniquely reveal his identity, he still says to us, well, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And as much as he does not see through a glass darkly, 
as much as he sees the Father's will with absolute clarity, and as much as even the Apostle Paul says, man, I see through the glass darkly. How much more am I seeing through a fuzzy glass? At the end of the day, he still says, yet I call you as my image bearers filled with my spirits in this world to obediently in faith still continue obeying me with great courage and seeing my kingdom come through your faith. And here are some ways that he's gonna call us to do that. And I say us on purpose. It's not Steve. This is not just Bianca and some of the elders. It's every single one of us who are in the kingdom. And one of the first ways that Jesus calls us to obediently trust him and live out our authority is by preaching. Now, that doesn't necessarily only refer to what happens here on the stage. It refers to every single time we talk about God and and Jesus as King and the Kingdom of God. One of the descriptions about Jesus, it says in Matthew 4, 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the Kingdom of God. It's a part of this verse we're focusing on now. We'll get to the second half now, healing every disease. But Jesus went through out Galilee, teaching and preaching, teaching and preaching. That is an essential responsibility given to him by his Father to see the kingdom come. Not only did Jesus do that, his disciples did that in direct connection to the kingdom of God. Here's just two verses. Philip in Samaria, Acts 8 verses 12. It says of the Samaritans that they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 19 verses 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. And so one of the ways God wants to use us to obediently be part of what he's doing in bringing his kingdom of God is by preaching about the name of Jesus and his kingdom. The second way is maybe some of what you would have thought of as you went into this message, and that is through healing. To go to that same verse that we spoke about earlier, but just looking at the second half, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now, if you read the books, especially the book of Matthew and Mark and Luke, that's kind of the right hand and the left hand of the kingdom of God. Proclamation, teaching, preaching. God is here. The kingdom of God is near. And demonstration. Preaching, teaching, demonstration. Proclamation, demonstration. The kingdom of God is here. Believe it and see it. And one of the main ways Jesus demonstrated it is by healing people. And again, not only true of him, but also his disciples. He said to them, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what he said before you and then heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Demonstrate the kingdom and proclaim the reality of the kingdom. This was the standard MO of Jesus and his disciples. Now, I'm trying to summarize all of the implications of the kingdom of God this morning. And we, a number of times here at Riverside, have preached about the reality of healing. And I know maybe you have many questions on this. But enough to say 
I'm hoping that you're starting to see that the reality of the kingdom of God is not just about going to church, but about proclaiming it and living it out and demonstrating it. And one of the ways is God overcoming sickness in other people's lives. I know we at Riverside have had times where we've prayed for people to get well and we haven't seen that happen before us. I know maybe for some of you, we talk about healing and some of you are like, yes, man, I'm ready to rock and roll and I'm ready to pray, lay hands on anything that moves. And others of you are like, I've tried that. In fact, I prayed for my mom, my child, friend, and it seemed like God let us down. And I recognize that. And we're gonna get into that in a second. So there are those moments, and yet, there are those moments where we have prayed for people. We heard about Gavin the other day. And God has moved in such a way that he has overcome physical illness in our lives. I don't know if you guys remember, I was reminded of the missions trip where a whole lot of our, about 20 odd people from our church went to Botswana. Do you remember that one of the main things that they saw that just blew them away and blew the community away was that yes, they went out preaching and proclaiming, but they also went and prayed for the sick. And Craig, I don't know, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I remember something like 20, 30 healings, legitimate healings that happened through the hands of these members of our church. The kingdom of God as we go out in obedience. Now, this next point is going to seem at first like an absolute contradiction of what I've just said, because one of the ways God calls us to live out His kingdom now, and this is like you're like, I'm going to be, I'm so upset I came to church today, but it's through suffering. You're like, hey, man, I was about to go lay hands on the sick and, and you bring me with that? Listen to what the same Jesus said. The same Jesus who said, teach on the kingdom and heal the sick also said this, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Paul, as he was preaching in the book of Acts, he says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Some of you are like, but that's not what the guy on TV says. The guy on TV says that if I have faith in God, I'm gonna be healthy and wealthy forever, amen, right? And then I walk around like sliding on butter. I get to like just see God's kingdom all the time. This doesn't sound like the Bible I've been told. Yet Paul says, no, 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 no. Yes, and through many hardships, you'll enter the kingdom of God. Paul writes to a church going through persecution. That doesn't mean their friends uninvited them on Facebook. It meant that their leaders were being imprisoned and killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul speaks to them to encourage them. And he says this, referring to the persecution, these fiery trials, he says, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted, this is the persecuted church, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. So Stephen, how does this work? Because I don't get this. So let me let you into something else that shifted in me over the last few weeks. This is how I used to see it. Man, we're gonna trust God. We're gonna lay hands on people. We're gonna trust God to heal. 
We're going to trust His promptings. We're going to trust His Word. And when we pray and we see the healing, amen, praise the Lord, that was the kingdom of God. If on the other hand, we've done everything that we could, we've prayed, we've persevered, we've trusted God, we've brought the elders, we've anointed with oil, there's nothing else that we could have done and the person is still not healed. I used to conclude, oh well, that's just the kingdoms of this world. In other words, healing, that's God's kingdom coming. No healing, that's not His kingdom coming. And the Scriptures challenged me by saying, listen, even through suffering, God's kingdom comes. You see, sometimes God gives us the gift of healing. Sometimes God gives us the gift of sustaining power. And both are miraculous. I don't know if you've seen this in your life. I most certainly have seen it in mine. And it is all over history and all over the pages of the Scriptures. Because you might be thinking, listen, all God has to do is one miracle in my life and then I'll believe in Him for the rest of my days. That is one of the biggest lies you could ever believe. Because my experience has been God can do something amazing and I'm like a goldfish in a bowl. I've forgotten about it five days later. And my faith is back where it started. The people of God in the Old and the New Testament were exactly the same, being eyewitnesses to some incredible moves of God and yet days later forgetting about His glory. But yet, yes, when God shows up in miraculous ways, we praise His name. It's His kingdom coming. But what is equally supernatural is when someone is going through a fiery trial when a church is going through a fiery trial, where someone is experiencing incredible suffering and difficulty in this life and yet is still fully yielded and submitted to the power and presence of God. And, it, and even though everything in their life speaks about difficulty and pain and suffering, yet they testify to peace and love and joy. That is equally miraculous to the person who was healed, Yes? And so Peter, who writes the book of 1 Peter, he says in the opening chapter, he says, when these things happen to you, your faith is being refined. And some of you are like, you know what? Refining faith, whatever. I would rather have my comforts. And Peter says, but here's the thing about your faith. Your comforts and your, your health may seem valuable right now, but your faith is of more value than gold. And so what God is doing to your faith is infinitely more valuable to anything else that you may be losing and struggling in. The book of James chapter one. We don't have these verses on bumper stickers on our car. But he says, kind of joy when you suffer these trials because God is doing something in you that would not happen apart from these trials. He's developing a maturity and perseverance in your life. And therefore, my conclusion, instead of being, when there's a miracle, amen, praise the Lord, God's kingdom has come, no miracle, oh well, whatever. Now I'm recognizing, man, when there's a miracle, praise the Lord, God's kingdom has come. Oh wow, no miracle, God's kingdom can still come. But both require an obedient submission to the Father, yes? Both are going to demonstrate the reign and the rule of God over the things of this world. 
One of the next ways that we can live out this reality is probably going to freak some of you out because, uh, no, we don't talk about these things in church. But one of the ways that God shows His kingdom in this world is with His power over demons, over evil, and these powerful realities that we cannot always see. And one of the ways Jesus demonstrated His authority in this world was by speaking to demons and having even these evil, mysterious beings obey Him. Jesus describes this. He says, well, if I drive out demons by the spirits of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. His disciples did exactly the same thing and were amazed. They came back to Jesus saying, even the demons obey us. In the early days of Riverside, I don't think I've ever spoken about this from the stage. Still a young pastor in many ways, wet behind the ears and coming before the scriptures. And I was never one of those guys who was kind of anti the works of the Spirit, but I was kind of not really fully embracing either. And I got to the point where I was like, Lord, you know what? I, I want to see more of your work in my life, specifically in these ways which I see in your word connected to the coming of the kingdom of God and the, and the spirits of God. And, and I just want to be part of that. And I want to see some more of that. And, and I was really praying with uh, uh, just desperation to God that day and in my mind I was kind of hoping to open my eyes and, and be like speaking in tongues or go out and just start healing people that's what I was hoping for but what actually happened was a few minutes later I got a phone call from someone in this church who said listen my good friend and neighbour is completely possessed by a whole bunch of demons won't you come and pray I'm like Lord isn't there another pastor who can do that right I wanted you to answer my prayer in this way not that way Nonetheless, went to his home. Wealthy, wealthy, wealthy home. And this person without describing these things too much was just in such clear evidence of being in the bondage of the enemy. Physically, you could see it from a mile away. Spiritually, you could sense it in the room. And so in connection with someone in this church, we we're able to talk and minister and pray not going to get into some of the crazy details of what happened. But at one point, we got to the time where we were inviting him when we could actually speak to him, because a lot of the time we couldn't. We were engaging other beings. When we could actually speak to him, we got him to renounce he had been in Freemasonry, and we got him to, to uh, denounce the vows that he had made in this thing. And as he was doing that, God's kingdom came. And evil left. And not a few days later, if I showed you a before and after picture, it looks like two different people. One was in bondage. One was in freedom. And that was the kingdom of God. And God has called us to this ministry. Just quickly, I don't have time to kind of expound all these other areas, but if we look at ministry in the kingdom of God, Paul refers to, uh, uh, in Colossians 4.11, he refers to fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Now, when we are involved in ministry and serving on a Sunday or on a Wednesday or in branch arts or in missions or whatever your ministry is, please don't see it through the lens of, oh, wow, I'm doing these guys a favor. I'm doing this church a favor. No, you are fellow workers in this kingdom. You are participating in the kingdom coming. And somehow through your active, prayerful, submitted obedience, as you act in faith by serving, God's kingdom is coming. 
And I don't care what your ministry is. I don't care whether it's a public ministry or a private ministry or a popular ministry or an unpopular ministry. When you are involved in ministry, you are fellow workers in the kingdom of God. Even conversion is a work of the kingdom of God. Jesus says in Matthew 18 verse three, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so conversion is bringing about this transformation where we're not to become childish, but childlike. Where we stop trusting our own minds. We stop trusting the kingdoms of this world and we become like children and in childlike faith, we trust the new king and we act in obedience, in accordance to what he calls us to. That is conversion and repentance. Romans 14, 17 also talks about the kingdom of God being a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy. You want to experience peace and joy? Are you looking to your circumstances for peace and joy? That means you're looking to the kingdoms of this world for peace and joy. The scriptures say peace and joy come through God's kingdom, even if your circumstances are a complete mess. And then righteousness. What is righteousness? It's, just, it's not just us doing the right thing that's part of it. But it's about us actively overcoming wrongdoing, not only in our lives, but in the lives around us. And so when we overcome wrongdoing in our nation and we overcome the wrongdoing of injustice in the people's lives, we are acting with God's power in the kingdom of God. And I... Next week, we're gonna talk about prayer and the kingdom of God. Think about spiritual gifts. Don't you think about when you pray about spiritual gifts? Lord, I just want you to use me. Well, here's the deal. God does wanna use you. He created it that way. And when he empowers you to serve in certain ways, that is the kingdom coming. And we are somehow mysteriously participating with God. In short, every single part of our Christian walk, our character, our obedience is somehow working in a submitted way as ones who are called to reign and rule in the kingdom of God. Think about character. Think about the fruits of the Spirit. Or, you know, you know 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is kind, love is patient. Just think about kindness. The kind of kindness that God gives. Think about gentleness. Think about long-suffering. Think about supernatural patience. Think about the kind of love that God calls us to do by living out these realities. That is what it means to reign and rule in God's kingdom. And it means when we do these things, it's not that God gives us a naughty badge up in heaven. He's bringing His kingdom through our kindness and our patience and our love. Our character is not about getting an A with God. Our character is about bringing God's kingdom as He empowers us and we submit it to Him. And so I'm hoping that what God is again doing is moving us from a passive observer in His kingdom to a dependent, prayerful obedience. And somehow the more submitted I am to God in His kingdom, the more I'm seeing His kingdom come. As we do this together as a church, we get to demonstrate the reality of this kingdom. Even though we are surrounded by the kingdoms of this world. I love how John Ortberg says this. He says, the kingdom of God is less about getting us into heaven and it's more about getting heaven into us. You see the difference? And so as we come to the table, I'm hoping that's what's starting to crystallize in your mind is that all of this is about the king, but a certain type of king, not the kind of king who rules with 
a, a kind of, you know, punishing us into obedience. He doesn't rule like the kingdoms of this world, but he rules by suffering. He rules by dying and giving us life and calling us to live in that. This is the king that is inviting us into his kingdom. And so as we do come and we do take communion, I'm gonna ask that you don't do this tritely, that you don't just go through the motions. I'm asking that you come forward with a prayer. And the prayer is, Lord, I come under you as the king. I recognize that by this bread that I take, your broken body and this glass of grape juice that I drink, a picture of your blood shed for me. This is how you enabled me to come into the kingdom. You paid for those things that are so wrong and broken about me that kept me out of the kingdom. And you have demonstrated such sacrificial love for me and it is on that basis that I come to you. But at the same time, I want to just suggest a kind of a part B to your prayer as you come to the table. And that is, maybe some of you would actually like to stay in the front. We're gonna have some music playing and you'd like to stay in the front. And, and maybe your prayer is somewhere along the lines of the kinds of things we were speaking about. And maybe you just feel like God is calling you to be more bold with your proclamation of the kingdom. And for you to make decisions here this morning, maybe you are praying for God to heal you or to use you to pray for and heal others. Maybe you are suffering, but all you're experiencing is the suffering of the kingdoms of this world. And you're just saying, God, I want to submit my suffering to you. And if you heal it, that's your kingdom coming. But if you don't, I still want your kingdom to come in my suffering. Maybe there's just a sense of, I don't know what this means for you. Maybe there's a sense of evil in your life. And your prayer is, God, I want to see your kingdom come. And so I'm gonna pray. And I'm gonna pray that as we come to the king who has demonstrated his power and authority over all things, that we see his kingdom come. So Father, you have invited us into the eternal kingdom. And Father God, you have demonstrated your power over the kingdoms of this world. And at the point where you seemed most defeated was exactly at the point of greatest victory on the cross. And so we choose with eyes of faith as we come to the bread and the wine. We come to recognize not the weakness of God, but the greatness of God, the glory of God, overcoming and defeating evil for all times. And Father God, as we respond, maybe we respond by staying in the front and taking communion in our own time or or just prayerfully going back to our seats. I pray that you meet us and that your kingdom comes here this morning. So church, let us do this together. Amen. So church, as we just continue in this moment of communing with Jesus. I want you to ask that whether you're seated out there or whether you've indicated by coming to the front, if anything this morning has just created such a stir in your heart and you are so desperate to see God's kingdom come in your life, I want to ask you just for a moment to raise your hand. So between you and God, this is your indication. You want to see more of God's active reign and rule in your circumstances, whatever they be.
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that there are, by hands being raised here this morning, the prayer, let your kingdom come and your will be done, is being prayed this morning. So folks, I'm just gonna, I don't know what your circumstances are, but I'm gonna pray about some of the things that we spoke about today. Father God, but I pray about concerning the, the preaching of your kingdom. And Father God, I pray that as your preaching enabled faith, God, I pray that faith is enabled amongst us today as we've heard about your kingdom. And maybe there are those here this morning who are responding in faith for the very first time and are recognizing you as king for the very first time and the presence of your kingdom for the very first time. And Father God, I pray that you would seal that with the giving of your Holy Spirit. That this is not just a moment, but this is a transition into your kingdom. Father God, I pray for maybe those who are being called to preach with your, about your kingdom with more faith than maybe you, you, they're thinking about their colleagues or their families, Father God, or even a specific ministry of teaching, Father. But I pray that you would empower us for exactly that. Father, I pray for those who are asking you with absolute desperation that you would move in, a, in, in healing power. And Jesus, as much as you are here, and you demonstrated your power over our bodies. I ask for that power to be here this morning. And if that is you, I'm just going to ask you in humble submission to just reflect that to God. God, that's what I'm asking for this morning. Demonstrate your faith. Yes, Lord, I know that you can do this. And Father God, I pray that you'd meet us here. That right now, flesh is being made whole. And right now, illness is being departed from church and pain is leaving people's bodies. Now ask that you're doing that by your kingdom coming here, Johannesburg 2020. Father God, I pray too for those who are, are at the same time experiencing suffering. And yes, Lord, we do pray that you would relieve that in miraculous ways. But we also recognize that one of the ways your, kingdom's, your kingdom comes is by empowering us with perseverance, empowering us with love and with joy, with only what you can give in the midst of such suffering, God. And so we submit our suffering to you, Lord. And we ask for your kingdom to come for peace, love and joy and righteousness. Advancing your kingdom that we experience such goodness even though there's such bitterness in our lives so overwhelm us with love this morning Father God I pray for any presence of evil in our lives and if if that's what's on your heart just reflect it back to God and pray for His kingdom to come and Father God I pray that you demonstrate your authority over some of the evil in our lives where there's assignments of the enemy. And I know this is so uncomfortable for some of us to talk about God, but you have demonstrated this is one of the ways you work. So God, may your kingdom come. Blow our minds, blow our hearts, blow our faith by demonstrating your lordship over the evil in our lives. And so Father God, all the things that I haven't even asked for, you are capable of doing even more than anything we've asked or imagined. And so God, we ask for your kingdom to come. We ask for your kingdom to come and your will to be established in and through our lives. And so God, we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.